This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet or visit esv.org to get started. You're listening to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for firm faith in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. How likely are you to contract the coronavirus, to die of it, or at least to know someone who does? Even if you knew those odds, such knowledge would bring little comfort. In these uncertain times, you need something more solid that you can trust You need a foundation you can stand on. In this pandemic, God is inviting us to build our lives on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. God is good, and he is in control. In a new book, Coronavirus and Christ, John Piper writes this, The coronavirus is God's thunderclap call for all of us to repent and realign our lives with the infinite worth of Christ. John Piper is the founder and teacher of DesiringGod.org and the chancellor of Bethlehem College and Seminary. He is also a council member of the Gospel Coalition. The ebook and audiobook for Coronavirus and Christ are available for free at DesiringGod.org, and you can also purchase the book on Amazon, published by Crossway. John Piper joins me on Gospel Bound to discuss what God is doing in the coronavirus, how we can persevere in prayer for an end to this pandemic, and why the health and wealth gospel must be exposed as impotent and dangerous. Thank you for joining me, John. Well, thanks, Colin, for having me. John, you opened the book recounting your cancer diagnosis on December 21st, 2005. What did you learn then that comforts you now? While I was waiting for the uh, urologist to go get the machine that does the biopsy, the Lord spoke. (laughs) And I said in the book that I I don't hear voices, but oh my, do I hear the Lord. And he said, God has not destined you for wrath, John Piper, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we wake, whether we wake or sleep. In other words, he didn't tell me I wasn't going to die. He said, whether you wake or sleep, you will live with me. So what I learned was that uh, among the thousands of precious promises that there are in the Bible, God is able to bring to mind the ones we need when we need them most. And, uh, you know, you were referring to odds. It's it doesn't help to know what your odds are. And goodness gracious, there was so much about odds being said, the odds for surgery and the odds for radiation, the odds for this and that. And Noel and I smiled at each other and said, isn't it great that we lean on God and not odds? So I, I just revel uh, every time I think about how well-timed God's help is. You know, I love that translation. It's my little translation anyway of Hebrews 416, let, let, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace. And then literally it's for a well-timed help. 
So I think um, it was a sweet lesson that the Lord confirmed that whatever you need is, whatever your crisis is, if you've stored up God's word in your heart, he's going to bring something really precious to mind. John, we know God is good, and we know that God is sovereign. This can be a difficult thing to reconcile theologically. It can also just be difficult to reconcile emotionally. How do we reconcile his sovereignty when we struggle to see his goodness during a pandemic with a virus that we can't see? If I wanted to be really clever here, I could quote Spurgeon, right? Why, why would you want to reconcile friends? Right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but that's been worked over long enough. I won't, <laughs> I won't go there because I, I really do think uh, there is a problem. And, and uh, it's not that simple to just say that and begin, be done with it. I have two answers um, that, that I tried to make plain. Uh, one is uh, the secret. It's not a secret if you read the Bible, but the, the sweet secret of experiencing sovereignty as sweet in the midst of a bitter providence. And that's exactly what I think it is. I don't think it's unbiblical to say that God has dealt bitterly with with the world right now. It's the bitter providence. Um, And yet, I'm going to make the claim that Christians can experience sweetness in it. And the key is this knowing that the same sovereignty that could stop the virus and doesn't is the very sovereignty that sustains the soul in it. That's the key. In other words, if I give up sovereignty to protect his goodness, I lose the very power that enables him to work all things together for my good. That's that's my first approach to reconciliation is to say sovereignty, while it creates problems on one hand, is the solution in that very problem on the other hand. But here's here's the, the other one. And I think this is really more important. And that is to, to realize for ourselves, for our children, I think for anybody that would listen, that God's sovereignty is purposeful. And since it's purposeful and he's good and wise, his purposes are always good, even if you can't see all of them. And I mentioned in the book that God has billions of purposes in this. Like there's 7 billion people being affected by this one way or the other. And he's got 10 purposes for each of them at least. And so that's whatever that number is, 10 times 7 billion. And I know, you know, 0.00001% of what he's doing. And I only know it because of what's the Bible is true. And so I, I go to the Bible and I look at the story of Joseph sold into slavery, and at the end, you see God meant it for good, that those brothers meant it for evil. That That's the sentence I write over the fall. Satan, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. I, I write it over the crucifixion. Satan, you meant it for evil. Judas meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And I write it over Ruth. I write it over Esther. I write it over Romans 832, which says God's going to give us all things, and then one of them is we're being killed all day long. And yet we're more than conquerors. So I think the answer is that these 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 are friends. The goodness of God and the sovereignty of God are not at odds. And the key answer is his purposefulness in all of his painful providences are good. 
My church happens to be going through the story of Joseph right now in a long exposition through Genesis. Hmm. Very kind of God in his providence hmm. to be able to guide hmm. us through that section of scripture during this during this time. I find, John, even then, it's still a fight for me to seize on to the Bible's theological promises of future hope in Christ when I'm dragged down by today's news. And my job does not really afford me the ability to be able to avoid a lot of exposure to that news if I want to just put my head in the sand and, and try to get through that way. But how can I see these promises, these glorious promises you're talking about here from Scripture, as they really are, which is more real than what I'm perceiving about my circumstances? I think... And the, the reason my mind goes here is because I've recently spent a, a lot of time since I had a trip to Asia canceled. I, do, I devoted all those weeks to working on look at the book, this, this video teaching thing that I do I, to Ephesians. And I, I did 60 look at the books on Ephesians chapter one. And I was so gloriously immersed in that chapter that when when that question was asked, of um, how can I see the promises for what they really are? How can I see them, know them, feel them, embrace them, live in the power of them? It hit me. That is the question that Paul was thinking when he wrote Ephesians 1. And the reason I know that is because when he gets to the prayer in verse 16, and he prays that we would have a spirit of revelation and the knowledge of him, he says, I want the eyes of your hearts to be opened, enlightened, to know. And that's better than devil knowledge, right? The devil knows these things, but he hates them. This is experiential, joyful, embracing knowledge that you may know three things, the hope to which you've been called, the glory of your inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of God's power that he worked in you when he raised Jesus from the dead. Now that I think is precisely what you're asking. How can I know? How can I feel? How can I see? Yeah, I know I have an inheritance. Yeah, I know I have a great hope. Yeah, I know God died for me and that there's a great power exerted toward me to raise me from the dead. Yeah, but, and that's exactly what he's writing to, that you may know this. And and so the first answer is pray like Paul did. I mean, this yeah. is a prayer. He's praying for the Ephesian believers that they would experience the life-walloping power of those three glorious realities. And here's the other thing. He doesn't pray until he's written the longest sentence in the Bible, right? Verses 3 to verse 14 is all one sentence, and it's all about you were chosen, you were predestined for adoption, you were redeemed by the blood of Christ. There are riches of grace for you. There's lavish wisdom and insight for you. He's going to sum up everything in Christ. He works everything together for the counsel of his will. He's guaranteeing your inheritance by sealing you with the Spirit, all to the praise of his glory. So he, he writes these breathtaking descriptions of who we are in Christ and how we got there and what God's doing to keep us there. Then he prays. And so I just see... Theology and prayer, theology and prayer, that is, know God with your head and pray down the Holy Spirit until that knowledge simply blows you away. And and it's just so encouraging to me that Paul structured Ephesians 1 exactly that way. That's the way it is. Just 
well, how many verses is that? 11 verses of theology, and it's the richest in the world. And then comes, oh God, grant these Ephesians to know this, feel this, love this, live in this. That, that's the way I feel about right now. It's the way I feel about my family. I feel about the, the people I love at Desire and God, at Bethlehem College and Seminary. We got lots of theology, Lord. We're, we're ready for this, <laughs> right? We're theologically ready. But are we ready? Are we spiritually heart ready? That's all the difference when we need the Holy Spirit. It was also kind of God. The McShane reading plan has just gone through Ephesians and Colossians mm. Mm. Uh, with those wonderful prayers from Paul. Well, at the same time, we're just diving in now into the Psalms, um, which is wonderful. It never That plan never fails because God's Word <laughs> That's right. never fails. Amazing how timely it is, no mm. matter what happens to be scrolling through our Twitter timelines. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> speaking, speaking of which, there are some Christians who might think it's presumptuous uh, for us to ask, what is God doing through the coronavirus? But you argue in this new book, Coronavirus in Christ, that it's not presumptuous to ask that question. Why? If God hadn't said anything, it would be presumptuous, uh, because what I think doesn't matter at all. I try to make that clear in the book that my opinion and yours, Colin, and no other human being's opinion counts for anything when it comes to things like this. But God has spoken and he's given us his word. And that word is not silent about sovereignty. It's not silent about suffering. It's not silent about his wisdom. It's not silent about his purposefulness. And therefore, when you put together God's sovereign, purposeful wisdom in all things, it would be, in my judgment, absurd, indeed blasphemous, to say that God has no purposes in what he's doing in the most historically am amazing thing that's ever happened. And I say that as an overstatement because it's unique. I mean, all the other plagues that have come and gone haven't been quite like this just because of the connectedness of the world. Right. Uh, they've, been, they've been worse, maybe, uh, in their mortality. But this one we're watching in real time touch every nation in, in the world. And so if that's true, if it's that big, if there's a God, <laughs> he's got purposes. And, uh, and then the only question is, has he said anything that would clue us into what they are? And I've read my Bible now for 65 years. And uh, I know that there are many, many things God has to say about this. Um, and I mentioned six of them in, in the book. Um, let, me, let me just bullet a couple of Two or three things. In Luke 13, he's confronted with what about the people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell? He looks them right in the eye and says, you're astonished that that tower fell upon them? It's not about them. It's about you. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I think that is Jesus' way of saying, whenever you begin to speculate about what other people how they had sinned when something horrible happens to them, you should pause and realize, no, 
horrible things are in the world to cause you to repent. It's a summons to repent. And I don't think it would be at all a stretch to say that applies to this moment. I think God is summoning the world to repent and realign their lives with the infinite worth of Jesus. Or Paul's experience in 2 Corinthians 1, where he's so devastated, he despairs of life itself. And then he says, that was to help me rely not on myself, but on God who raises the dead. And I don't think it's wrong to generalize and say, okay, if God brings Paul to the end of his rope through suffering that he might rely upon God, then surely that would be a gracious purpose of God in bringing other peoples to the end of their rope. Um, I think probably the most fundamental text in all the New Testament about suffering is Romans 8, 19 to 23, where it's connected to the fall. And the fall is the description of how moral evil resulted in physical pain. And I've pondered for years, why is that? Why would, why would go, the, the heart preference of Adam and Eve for Satan and for self over God, the heart preference, which introduced sin and death into the world, introduced death, misery into the world. Why would God take that out on their bodies? Why would he take it out on, the, on nature with all kinds of futility and corruption? And my answer is sin by its very nature is blinding to us. We don't see the outrage of our hatred against God, our belittling God, our giving God less time than we give our hair. It, nobody loses any sleep over that kind of treason. But, oh, let God touch our bodies, the bodies of our loved ones, and then we really get our back up because bodies are precious to us, but not God not the belittling of God. That's no big deal. But, oh, my cancer's a big deal. My arthritis is a big deal. The wreck that I just had with somebody is a big deal. So I think um, God's subjecting nature, when nature didn't do anything, God's subjecting nature to futility and corruption is a drama put in front of people every day of their lives Sin is this serious. The belittling of God is an outrage just as serious as the coronavirus and more. So I think Romans 8, 19 to 23 is a profound analysis of why there is such misery in the world and what message it has for us. And there are many other passages that would point us to what God is doing. So I don't think it's um, right at all to say that it is presumptuous to ask God from his word what he's doing. I think that's the key. You, you talk about from his word, and you're right. citing specific passages that have fairly general application Yes, um, that could apply to any number of things individually and collectively. But as you said, the magnitude of this makes us think it it's not presumptuous to wonder if God's trying to get our attention. Right. When you, here. when you read the book of Job, for example, it's clear that the author wants us not 
to attribute Job's suffering to his particular sins. The very first sentence in the book is that he was a just and holy man. There wasn't anybody as good as Job in this author's experience. And so what you're about to read in this man's tragic loss of children, loss of health, is not about his personal sins. And so I don't make any statement in this book about anybody's particular sin being identified with their particular suffering, though that's possible. I mean, God struck Herod down for his pride, and he can do right. that to anybody he wants. But you can't draw the inference for sure about that. But the book of Job is written for a reason. <laughs> it's written for a reason. And it's to help us know that God has his purposes. James sums it up as that the God, God is merciful and gracious. And that's the lesson he wanted us to learn from the book of Job in God's sovereignty over life and death and health. John, you've read N.T. Wright's comments um, saying that it's presumptuous uh, to to judge what God's doing through the coronavirus, but you disagree. You don't think that's presumptuous. What did you make of that article by N.T. Wright? Well, um, first of all, I assume that the title, which was quite provocative, was not his choice. I don't want to blame titles uh, on, on anyone except the people who write them. And so m maybe or maybe not. But I think he said enough in the article to warrant the title. And therefore, uh, it was not unduly provocative, probably. Um, I, I found the article really problematical at numerous levels. And, uh, and I, I consider N.T. Wright a friend. I mean, we've had our disagreements over the years. I consider him a brother. Um, I think he's brilliant, a lot smarter than I am, I think, knows a lot more than I do about a lot of things. Um, and so uh, I don't go after this article as going after somebody that I don't like or don't admire. Uh, there are times when I say, N.T. Wright, please, what are you doing this is just so unhelpful then what i have in mind there is when he says and i think this is the the most telling sentence what if there are moments he writes what if there are moments when the only advice is to wait without hope because we'd be hoping for the wrong thing well i just am not sure what he was trying to do with the sentence there are moments when the only advice is to wait without hope. I think that's not true. I don't think there are any moments in the Christian life where we need to wait without hope. We are justified. We are free from condemnation. We have eternal life. We've been sealed for the day of redemption. There is always hope for the Christian and so he must have meant something there different than what the words seemed to say. And uh, I don't think that was a pastorally or theologically helpful sentence. Um, I, I think it's very strange to set up your position by caricaturing others' decisions as silly. There, it's not silly to want to know what God is doing and to try to find out from the Bible. He calls it a knee-jerk, would-be Christian reaction. It's not 
knee-jerk. My life has been devoted to this for 50 years. It's not knee-jerk. I hope it's not would-be Christian, but really Christian. He calls it a reflection of rationalism, and he defines that as everything must have an explanation. No, no, everything doesn't have to have an explanation that we know Everything does have an explanation. God knows it. But it isn't rationalism that wants to know why God does what he does. People long before the Enlightenment wanted to know why things were happening and got help from the Bible, from the Bible's general statements. This is what I deal with in this book. He says we string together dodgy speculations. No, no, we're not just stringing together. They're not dodgy. They're not evasive. They're not tricky. They're not speculations. They're straight out of the Bible. He said, rationalists want explanations. Romantics want a sigh of relief. Actually, everybody deep down in their sober moments want explanations and need help from the Bible. That's why it's written. The Bible is a very glorious, big, rich book, and it is lavish grace that we are given wisdom and insight in the Bible as to what God is up to in the world. And it's not romanticism to want to have a sigh of relief. And when he defines lament as what happens when the question why doesn't get an answer, that's simply too narrow. It's taking one aspect of Scripture and using it to silence other aspects of Scripture. There are numerous laments which are precisely in response to what we know exactly what is happening, and it's painful. Psalm 107 is a good example, or Romans 8. I think the groaning of Romans 8 is lament. It's groaning, oh God, oh God, I can hardly stand this pain that I'm in. That's what people who are born of God, full of the Holy Spirit, feel when they're dealing with the corruption and futility of this world. And it's not without explanation. That very chapter is full of rich help from God. So I find that kind of setting up of his position of not offering explanations over against caricatured silliness and dodginess and knee-jerk would-be people is really quite unhelpful. And I hope people will look beyond that kind of counsel to the way the Bible really does give concrete, specific, helpful answers to people's questions. It is so true that God is doing a billion things in this coronavirus. And those billion things are unknown to us, 99.999%. But he has said specific things in his word that are so incredibly helpful about the reason God ordains pain in many of our lives. And those things are stated in such a way that it is not fanciful to draw a line from them to the coronavirus, which is what I, I try to do in the last part of that book. So I was very disappointed and I, I hope that, uh, and I'm, I'm sure, I am sure that uh, Dr. Wright in his pastoral labors with people does give them hope. And so I'm I'm quilly, I'm really quite perplexed by what he wrote there. Now we've just concluded through the Gospel Coalition a day of 
prayer and fasting, uh, which you participated in helping us to lead. And one of the things we prayed for repeatedly around individually, uh, collectively, with our families, and we continue to pray, is for God to eradicate this disease. Even as we pray at the same time, it would help us to endure for as long as it lasts. Now, when God does not answer the way that we want, the way that we expect, how do we still hold on to faith and persevere in that prayer? Uh, I wrote a poem a couple of years ago about that passage in Matthew 7 about which of you has a son who asked him for uh, bread would give him a stone, or if he asked for fish would give him a, a, a scorpion or, I mean, a snake. And, uh, and, and in the poem, I say, suppose you're in a boat, little boat, and unbeknownst to you, you're drifting out to sea. And you desperately need an anchor to throw down to stop you from going out with the tide. You need a, a heavy stone anchor. You need a stone. And you're utterly oblivious, and you're just basking in the sun, and you just want some bread. You want a sandwich. And you ask God, can I have some bread, please? And God hears your prayer and gives you a stone so that you can throw it overboard and save your life with an anchor. And then I pictured uh, somebody who needs to have uh, the venom taken out of the fangs of a snake so that he can create an antidote for the bite that he's received and uh, be saved from death. And oblivious that, that that that's what he needs, he, he thinks fish would help. So he asks for a fish so that he can put the fish scales on his uh, snake bite and heal him, which God knows won't work. And so when God hears the plea for a fish, he gives him a snake so that he can get the venom so that he can heal. Now, the point of that poem is to say, um, that that story, that text about what Jesus said about prayer, is is it comes to the conclusion. Uh, therefore, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father give good things to those who ask Him? In other words, if you need a stone and you ask for bread, He's going to give you a stone. If you need a snake and you ask for a fish. He's going to give you a snake. My son, Benjamin, when he was four, asked for a snack. And I opened the cupboard and got the cookies out and they were all moldy. And uh, I held it up and I said, Ben, I, I, I can't give you uh, the snack that you always love. And why not? Because it's got fuzz on it. And he said, I'll eat the fuzz. Well, <laughs> daddy's not going to give him what he wants because he loves him. And so you give him a saltine, which is not all that great, but um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's what he really wanted because he didn't want to die. Um, so I, I, I think the answer to the question is to look at the totality of the teaching on prayer in the New Testament, the totality of God's goodness and sovereignty, that he works all things together for our good, and that he withholds no good thing to those who walk uprightly. I mean, I, I'm just blown away by the life and, and the ministry of uh, George Mueller. George Mueller preached at his wife's funeral, and he had cried out, God, save her, save her, save her. And he didn't. And when he preached uh, her funeral message, he took the text from the Psalms, uh, God is good and do with good. 
And his three points were God was good in giving her to me. God was good in leaving her with me so long. And God was good in taking her from me. He really believed that text. God withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. But you have to have a big confidence in God, rooted, I think, in the cross in order to believe that. Speaking of which, the health and wealth gospel. Incredibly pathetic as we try to see it deal with this crisis. The name it, claim it, um, uh, claims look inept. The faith healing looks like the sham that it is. I fear, though, that people are always looking for a spiritual quick fix. Hmm. And somehow none of that will be noticed, that we see no faith healers attempting to go to the hospitals and to heal people, <laughs> that, that, that God clearly desires something more for us than the mere health and wealth promises of those wealthy preachers themselves. I mean, at one level, it seems obvious that this is a sham, and yet so many people fall for it. What do you envision being, or maybe just some of your hopes of how of God's purposes through, through this, um, how it might affect the health and wealth gospel that you have been preaching against for so many years? Well, that's totally in the hands of God, isn't it? Um, on the one hand, I can imagine it having no effect whatsoever. And and I don't say that because of um, the observation that they've been ignoring uh, old folks' homes and, and um, intensive care units uh, for a long time. Uh, you know, if you have power to heal, you should just go to all the hospitals and just go from room to room and do your your power and uh, but that's that that's not an argument that is going to carry the day what what moves me is and I was just reading it the other day I think I read it with my wife we we're reading through the gospel of Luke and we came to chapter 16 and in chapter 16 you've got uh, this big division between Abraham's bosom and Hades and you can't cross over and so the 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 rich uh, man who's in Hades says, well, at least, at least send Lazarus to tell my brothers so that they don't come here. And, and Jesus says, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if someone rises from the dead. And I no. looked at my wife and I thought, are you kidding me? What, what is go What does that mean? What does that mean? And, and the, what it means is this, if God doesn't give prosperity preachers the eyes to see text after text after text where Christians are to deal in groaning with the sufferings of this age for the growth of their faith. If they can't see that, then they wouldn't see if someone should rise from the dead or if coronavirus should wipe out half the world. They wouldn't, they wouldn't see it. Because it, it's a spiritual blindness that keeps them from seeing the plain meaning of Scripture. That's that's the scary thing that you, you would think, well, at least a coronavirus will show them that their theology is off. I'd say, no, but because coronavirus is no clearer than Scripture. Now, yeah. I said it was in God's hands because God could do that. Good. He could yeah. He could make the coronavirus have that meaning. They could say, oh, 
That's what I've been missing all these years. It's right there in the Bible. Thank you, Jesus, for showing me Romans 8.23, where Christians who have the fullness of the Holy Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for our redemption, the the redemption of our our bodies. So um, I, I think we should pray toward the unseating of the dominance of the prosperity gospel in many places in the world. And we should we should pray for the blindness. I mean, I watched one of these key leaders. You probably saw the same video Copeland, looking into the video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he said, I command you. I command you. I command you. No, I think he said, demand that you. And I thought to myself, are you kidding me? Will he have any credibility when this is over? And the answer is, yes, he will. Yes, he yeah. will. Because uh, people just, if they can't see what's in the scripture, then they probably won't see what's in front of their face unless God comes in power. I'm preaching that passage in June. So you've done some work for me, which I appreciate. And uh, were there not people who saw the risen Jesus who didn't believe in him? <laughs> yes. Well, here's the crazy thing. I mean, it's a prophecy even of, a, of his own experience. Yes. People would that, see the risen Christ, know that this man was resurrected, and they still didn't believe in him. Yeah. As soon as the possibility is revealed to the Pharisees that the tomb is empty, they are immediately spinning it, right? Absolutely. They, in, instead of going toward evidence as a yep. possible undermining of their prejudices, they are spinning it to, to justify their own preferences. That's the way they did all the way along. And, and I think it needs to be said, Colin, I, and I didn't see this for 20 years where Jesus said that the Pharisees were lovers of money. Mm. You know, most people don't think of Pharisees. Judas, at, Judas yeah, himself. Judas, or but it's, but Judas, yeah. I can kind of get, he was a thief, but, yeah, but, true. but, yeah. but, but Pharisees, are the embodiment of theological orthodoxy. But deep down, mm. it says they were full of rapaciousness, old-fashioned word for mm. greed. Mm. They loved money and they loved the praise of men. Those mm. two things are so mm. powerful in the sinful human soul that you can put a coronavirus right in, the, in front of their face and they'll say, we can heal that. We can heal that. We can drive that out. <laughs> I mean, sin is a scary thing. It is so unbelievably insane producing. The parables are designed to keep the blind blind. Um, mm. Only the Lord opens the eyes. One thing that you write very hopefully about in this book is that you're encouraged that you could foresee God's purposes in the coronavirus actually fueling global missions. Would love to hear what what you what you hope and what we can pray that God would do in that yeah. way. You know, I was just so encouraged this morning. I got an email from J.D. Greer, and I don't think he'd mind me sharing this. Um, and he was thanking me for that uh, that section in the book because he's just written a book to to try to help people not waste their lives, get a vision for the unreached peoples, make much of their lives in global missions. And he thought, oh, shoot, now it's so poorly timed because nobody can do anything. and Nobody can and, go anywhere. That's right. Nobody can go anywhere. So it looks like Satan's getting the upper hand and missions mm -hmm. is being shut down, to which he and I both want to say, baloney, uh, that's just not the way God is. God suffers his cause to have tactical setbacks in order to get strategic victories. That's the absolute biblical key. And the text I use in the book to support it is Acts chapter 8, where, what, eight chapters? 
eight chapters after being told, uh, take this gospel from uh, Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, and they're still stuck in Jerusalem eight chapters into this history. And what has to happen? Stephen has to be killed. A persecution arising from Stephen's martyrdom has to arise, and the saints are driven out of Jerusalem, every one of them. And what do they do? They go preaching through where? Judea and Samaria. That's not an accident in, in Luke's account. So the point is, okay, if God has to, he will use utterly unexpected means to get his mission accomplished. That's one way. And and right now we can't see it. I can't see it. I don't know where that's, how that's going to work. I just know he means to get this done. This gospel will be preached throughout the world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. It's going to happen because the gates of hell can't prevail against the church. But here's a, here's a second thing of the way I think it works. Human beings tend to not go into missions because they're just so settled, right? Everything is rosy life. I've got, I've got my plans. Uh, my, my business is going this way. My family's going this way. I've got my retirement in view, blah, blah, blah. And suddenly the world comes crashing down like this. What does God do? He, un- he takes a tree, a good tree, and he loosens it. He shakes it so that the roots are loose. And now, if God willing, this thing passes, what will they do with their lives? My guess is 10,000 of them are going to do something different. And I hope many of those are going to be oriented towards finishing the Great Commission. Um, a, a third way is just the sense of eternity. I mean, my goodness, most people go through life with no sense of mortality, no sense of eternity. Right. And right now, it's pretty hard to go to bed at night <laughs> having looked at some predictions and yeah. not think a little bit about whether you're going to die. Right. And that's such a good thing. It is a good thing. It's good for our children. I think parents who try to hide this from their kids and not let them think any deep or scary thoughts are not thinking clearly about what it means to get their children ready to live in the real world. So uh, that's another way that God could do it is just shaking everybody into a sense of eternity really matters. God is real. Sin is real. Christ is real. Heaven and hell are real. Let's go finish the Great Commission because we had a long eternity in front of us, and life here is very, very fragile. Amen. I have one more request for John Piper, uh, his new ebook and audiobook. John, I think this is the first audiobook you've read yourself. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's okay. true. Okay. Excellent. So it's available for free, desiringgod.org. You can also purchase the book on Amazon, uh, published by Crossway. I want to make this request. At the end of the book, John, you conclude with a prayer. I would love for you to just read that aloud for our listeners. We're just going to close that way and you know, lead us and help us together to pray through this coronavirus. Okay, I'd be happy to do that, Colin. Father, at our best moments, by your grace, we are not sleeping in Gethsemane. We are awake and listening to your son's prayer. He knows deep down that he must suffer, but in his perfect humanity, he cries out, if it is possible, let this cup pass. In the same way, we sense deep down that this pandemic is appointed in your wisdom for good and necessary purposes. We too must suffer. Your son was innocent. We are not. 
Yet with him in our less than perfect humanity, we too cry out, if it is possible, let this cup pass. Do quickly, O Lord, the painful, just, and merciful work you have resolved to do. Do not linger in judgment. Do not delay your compassion. Remember the poor, O Lord, according to your mercy. Do not forget the cry of the afflicted. Grant recovery. Grant a cure. Deliver us, your people, helpless creatures, from these sorrows, we pray. But do not waste our misery and grief, O Lord. Purify your people from powerless preoccupation with barren materialism and Christless entertainment. Put our mouths out of taste with the bait of Satan. Cut from us the roots and remnant of pride and hate and unjust ways. Grant us capacities of outrage at our own belittling of your glory. Open the eyes of our hearts to see and savor the beauty of Christ. Incline our hearts to your word, your son, your way. Fill us with compassionate courage and make a name for yourself in the way your people serve. Stretch forth your hand in great awakening. For the sake of this perishing world, let the terrible words of revelation not be spoken over this generation, yet still they did not repent. As you have stricken bodies, strike now the slumbering souls, forbid that they would remain asleep in the darkness of pride and unbelief. In your great mercy, say to these bones, live and bring the hearts and lives of millions into alignment with the infinite worth of Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound with Colin Hansen. Join us next time as we continue the search for firm faith in an anxious age. Visit tgc.org slash gospelbound to find transcripts and past episodes. Subscribe to my newsletter and suggest a guest or topic that will help you find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ.